Good morning. If you have a copy of the if you have a copy of the scriptures, if you'll open up to Galatians chapter five, Galatians chapter five, as we continue our God Space series, as you're turning there, as I do every week, I've share miracle stories with you of what Jesus has done in through around our church, and for some reason allows us to be a part of it. This one's going to seem small and insignificant, but what I've said many times: you celebrate small miracles, then you also celebrate big miracles. You see God do a whole lot of miracles in your midst. And so this past week, Pastor Joe and I, I think it was on Tuesday or Wednesday, went over to the Finding Hope Center to do a little bit of work. We walked into what we call the mother's room, which is a room with just diapers, wipes, some toys, um, other things for families to take. And part of it is boxes of cereal. And we walked over to the boxes of cereal to start to rearrange stuff. And I came around that little corner and looked at the shelf and I was like, oh no, there's ants. And so some ants had made their way under the one wall from the exterior, and they got up to these boxes of cereal. And there were about five boxes that we had to pitch and throw away, which, again, it's $7 worth of stuff. But it was all donated stuff. I was kind of bummed. And so, man, I, I mean, I rained down hell's fury on those ants. I got like six cans of Raid. Like, it was insane. I was so mad. But I took those five boxes of cereal and I was walking out to the dumpster, so just right on the back exterior of the building here, and I was just praying as I was walking out, and all I said was, Lord, this is kind of frustrating that people had donated these items, and now I have to throw away $7 worth of cereal, but that's all right, we're just going to trust you, and you have a bigger plan than, than, than in this. Y'all, I'm not even joking that instantaneously, as I was walking and praying that prayer, my phone vibrated. And I opened my phone up, and it was a text from a gentleman named Matt Bell. Matt was the youth pastor that led the mission team here back in June, if you remember that group of teenagers that came up. And Matt sent me a picture, let me get the number right, of 148 boxes of cereal. And he said, hey, Pastor Aaron, we collected 148 boxes of cereal this week. Just wanted to let you know these are going to hit the mail here in just a few minutes. Be on the lookout for them. Y'all, we serve the Jesus that even in sugary cereal is the, the Ephesians 3.20 God, exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. Um, we throw away five, and God's like, here's 148 more. Stop griping, Aaron. You know? Like, if you're on the live stream and you're not clapping too, something's wrong with you. Goodness. I just... I can't get over that kind of stuff that Jesus keeps doing that around us and he allows us to, be, to see it and be a part of it. Well, hey, stand with me in honor of reading God's word. I got a fire in my belly this week and hopefully y'all got your caramel macchiato and you're a little bit more awake than last week because I'm, I'm so ready. Galatians chapter five, we're starting this new chapter and we're, we're starting to get close to the end of this letter. We'll finish it out at least by the end of this year. But in Galatians five, the first six verses, Paul writes this to this church. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the, a yoke of slavery. Then Paul says, take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ and you've fallen away from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. And here's the summation of this chapter. What matters is faith working through love. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. And God, we pray now that you would teach us, that you would grow us, mold us, and shape us into the image of Jesus this morning. 
God, would you give us ears that we need to hear from the throne room of heaven through your word? God, would you give us soft hearts, Lord, not to just be hearers of the word, as James says, but that we would also be doers of the word. And God, would you give us that obedient spirit to live out the truths that we encounter in these six verses the remainder of our week. God, we pray that we make much of Jesus this morning. And it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Our simple question in the title of today's message is this, three simple words, what is freedom? What is freedom? Sadly, it seems like that question is one of these, quote, hot button topics for us to consider these days, but I want us to genuinely ask those three words to ourselves and come to a biblical understanding of it. What is freedom? You see, for the last 15 weeks, if you've journeyed with us through the book of Galatians, we've seen Paul author this letter to this group of churches that was really born from an encounter that they had in Acts chapter 15 with a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers who were trying to lead astray these new followers of Jesus in this region of Galatia. We looked just a few weeks ago, we saw that the Galatians were probably a pagan people group. They thought Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes probably followers of some sort of mythological religion. And when Paul came in with the gospel, they left that, those chains of paganism. They had experienced freedom in Christ. But now these Jewish false teachers come in and say, hey, maybe you should consider yourself binding yourself up again with some new chains. Maybe you should consider binding yourself to legalistic Judaism and trusting in yourself as a means of salvation. Throughout this letter so far, as we start chapter 5 here, 104 verses that we've looked at so far, Paul continues to champion this one theme, and we've said it over and over and over, freedom in Jesus. That salvation is found only in Jesus when we choose to repent of sin and follow Jesus Christ. It hasn't been since chapter 2 that Paul used this word freedom, but now in chapter 5, he's, he's going to bring clarity for us this morning on what this freedom actually is and answer that question for us, what is freedom? You see, as I've thought about this question this past week, I, I started to think and I was like, shouldn't I know the answer to the question, what is freedom? I mean, that's, a, that's an ideology that we champion in our nation, that things going on right now, people say, I'm, I'm fighting for freedom. We need to keep our freedoms. We're all about freedom right now. But what's interesting, and I tried this as an experiment this week, I asked different people, I asked them that question, what is freedom? And you know, not one time did I get the exact same answer. Not one time in the midst of everyone that I asked that question, what is freedom, did I actually get the answer the same across the board. I was driving with, in my car uh, with my family on Wednesday evening, and we were driving to our life group. And I asked my family, my wife Elizabeth, my two daughters, so Colby and Sophia, I said, all right, guys, I got a question for you three. I said, what is freedom? Well, Liz started to answer, and then our nine-year-old Sophia chimed in. She said, Daddy, that's easy. I got it. I said, what's, what's freedom, baby? You tell me. And I quote, she said, freedom is doing what I want, when I want, however I want. I said, baby, I'm not positive. Don't quote me on this, but I think you're kind of leading, leaning into anarchy a little bit. You know, I don't, I don't think that's exactly what, what freedom is. But just think about freedom. You know, I, I got to thinking this week, freedom for me when I was a child was that last bell before summer vacation. 
and that bell would chime in, we would look at the clock and you'd see that second hand start to tick and that minute hand moved and immediately the bell chimed and what were you in that moment? You were free. For some people, maybe freedom is the thought of July 4th, the celebration of Independence Day, this, this liberties that we possess in our nation. We live in the greatest nation on planet Earth. And we think to ourselves, well, that's the, the definition of what freedom truly is. Maybe it's when you get to Friday in your vocation and you get to go and take that time card and you get to clock out for the weekend. And right once you hear that time card click, what do you think to yourself? Finally, I'm free. Or maybe freedom is when you've endured 35 years of working for the man and you finally make it to your last day of employment and you no longer have to clock in and clock out. You get to set your own schedule and do what you want. You've retired. You're finally free. If you're like me, freedom is this. It's that one hour that you get after you put your kids to bed where it's total silence. I did this last night. My kids went to bed at 7.30 last night. Praise the Lord. And you sit on the couch and you take a deep breath. And What do I say? I'm free. You know, that, we have so many definitions of freedom. And whether we realize it or not, here's the reality. When we talk of freedom, we each bring our own preconceived ideas to the table. And when we talk about Christian freedom specifically, here's the danger. And here's the danger, if I'm honest with you this morning, as Western Americans. We have an idea of what freedom is that we want to take and we want to place into the Christian version of what freedom is when, when we talk about being free in Christ. Here's what I want us to do this morning. Let's go to the Word of God with a blank slate. Let's ask ourselves the question this morning, what is freedom? And let's let the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let's let the Spirit of God speak to us this morning and answer that question as we ask, as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, who's repented of their sin and, and I follow Christ now, when Paul says that I am free, what is he actually saying? What does that mean in my life personally? I want to give you two things, if you're a note taker, to write down. First off, Paul emphasizes, and it's really in verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and a little bit of verse 5. Paul emphasizes that we are free from the yoke of slavery. We're free from the yoke of slavery. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Paul starts off with this very powerful statement. He says in verse 1, the very first part, For freedom Christ has set us free. I picture Mel Gibson on the back of a horse with a big sword, his face all painted. Freedom! I mean, that's what Paul's doing here. For freedom Christ has set us free. But here's, here's what we have to do with that statement. We take that truth, but we also have to look at the inverse of that. It's because of Jesus that we are free. But apart from Jesus, there's a big problem that Paul wants us to see. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are slaves to sin. Apart from Jesus Christ, Paul continues to emphasize to us that we are bound to sin. That sin is our master. Let me show you two verses quickly that emphasize this again. One from the lips of Jesus, John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus responds in this verse and he says, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin, let's put a little parenthesis right there and write your name in. When Jesus says, Everyone that commits sin, that's you, that's me, that's everybody around you that's watching online, that's all of us. We are sinners by nature. He says, And those who commit sin are what? We are slaves of sin. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 6 to the church in Rome. We're going to start studying that book in January. I think it's going to be very culturally relevant for us. 
But as he, he writes to this church, what does he say? For when you were, he's talking to believers, but he's talking about a past condition before they knew Jesus. For when you were slaves of sin. Again, this is a, a condition that apart from Jesus Christ, we are not free. Rather, we are bound to the chains of sin. And Paul's continuing to remind these Galatian believers that if you don't know Jesus or you disregard Jesus and cast him to the side, that you are under the tyrannical rule of Satan and you are slaves to your own sin. And here's the worst news on planet Earth. You ready for this? Like, Aaron, this is not encouraging. We're going to get there, I promise. Here's the worst news on planet Earth. There's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. A couple weeks ago, I was watching a movie on Netflix. I can't remember what the movie was, but it had the rock in it, so it was awesome. I can remember they, in this movie, he had to go fly in to rescue this one guy that lived in this country where they were mining diamonds. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but I do remember that they had thousands of these people who were working these mines, and they were paying them a wage of, let's say, 50 cents a day in order to work these mines for this, this mine for this taskmaster. Here was the problem. They also had to not only work for this gentleman, but they had to rent the gear from this guy. So they had to rent their shoes, their clothing. They had to rent all of the tools that they needed to go down into this mine. They had to rent everything. And while they were getting paid 50 cents a day, in order to rent everything from the person in charge, it cost 75 cents a day to do it. You see, their condition had them in such a state that there was no way of escape. There was nothing they could do about it. No matter how hard they tried, no matter how hard they worked, it didn't matter. There was nothing they could do about the enslaved state in which they found themselves. And Paul reminds us of that here with the inverse of Galatians 5.1. Friends, apart from Jesus, we are bound in sin and slowly dying in our spiritual state. What's the solution? He tells us the solution is Jesus. We needed Jesus, the God-man, to step into the historical narrative and to set us free. We needed somebody to swoop in and pay the entire debt that we owed to rescue us from the pit and tyrannical rule of hell. We couldn't do it without Jesus. We needed Jesus to live the life we couldn't live, die the death we couldn't die, break the chains we couldn't break to give us the eternal life we didn't deserve. We needed Jesus. Somebody better tweet that. That was good. Goodness. In Galatians 5.1, what, what does Paul remind us? Jesus, for freedom, has set you free. Hey, flip back a few, a few chapters or a few books in your Bible to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I want to show you this again because this is so important. Luke chapter 4. It's right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You can read in the beginning of Luke chapter 4 that Jesus had been out in the wilderness tempted by Satan for 40 days. He comes back in. He begins his public ministry. He's now 30 years old. The Bible says in Luke chapter 4 that he heads into the synagogue where he walks up in front of the people. We don't know what the synagogue is. It's basically the um, church of the day. It was the gathering of all the religious people, those the followers of, of God at the time. He reaches over as he stands up in front of all of these people. There's a basket. There's scrolls in it. Jesus reaches down, grabs a scroll, and he happens to grab, happens to grab the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61. He opens up that scroll, and in front of all of these people, in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 18, he reads these prophetic words written about him thousands of years before he actually came uh, to live, breathe, and do the work of ministry on planet Earth. And here's what he says. The Spirit of, Lord, of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. And then here's the mission of Jesus right here. He has sent me to proclaim release 
to the captives, those that were in chains to unbind their shackles, those that were imprisoned and enslaved, I've come to set them free. Then he keeps going. Recovery of sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. You know, Jesus, after this, did a lot of physical work, a lot of physical healing and restoration. But those were all symbolic of the ultimate restoration he came to bring people. What was it? Setting free the captive. Setting free the sinner. Because the culmination of Jesus' ministry was not the feeding of the 5,000. That was pretty incredible. The culmination of Jesus' ministry was not giving sight to the blind or healing the woman with the blood issue. That was all incredible. But they were symbolic of the culmination, which was what? When a bloodied, battered Jesus voluntarily crawled onto a cross for you and I. When a bloody, battered Jesus had the sin problem of me and you placed on his shoulders, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and the wrath of God was poured out upon him, and he cried out three words, it is finished. What does that mean? That the captives were finally set free. We were finally set free from the sin that had enchained us, that had enslaved us. Why? Because of the substitutionary death of our Jesus on the cross. Christ has come to set us free. And Paul starts off with that proclamation, the Mel Gibson cry from, to the Galatian people. Why? Because it's a big deal. He wants the Galatians to understand this Judaic legalism that you're running towards, man, that's just small potatoes compared to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on your behalf. Don't miss it. And then Paul says, go back to Galatians chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. And then he makes this other proclamation to us here. Now what? Because that's true. That's a, that's a reality. That's a truth that we know. Paul says, now you need to stand firm. Circle those two words in your Bible if you have a pen. Paul says, now you need to stand firm. Stand firm on what? Paul says, you know what the truth is. And now you have false teachers that are trying to infiltrate their way into your church to deceive you, trick you, and pull you away from Jesus Paul says, Galatian believers, if you believe Jesus has saved you, then you stand firm and plant your feet in the ground. Don't move. Understand his death is sufficient. His resurrection is sufficient. Don't move from it. Don't let anybody try to convince you otherwise. Either Jesus is all sufficient or he's not sufficient at all. You've got to stand firm in that truth. That stand firm phrase there too, if you end up circling that, write the word verb above there. It's a continual action It's not a one-time event. It's a continual action that we have to constantly engage in. That we continually remind ourselves, Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is sufficient. It's not about my religious effort. I don't have to try to please God. Jesus is totally sufficient, and he's freed me from sin, and I'm going to stand firm in that truth. Look at verse 2. Verse number 2, Paul starts to paint a picture for the Galatians on this whirlwind that they're walking into if they submit to this false teaching of the Galatians. It's interesting, the the structure of this passage here. I didn't realize, honestly, this until this week. The Galatians have not actually moved forward on the Judaizers' teaching. They they haven't made any decisions yet is kind of the structure of chapter 5. It's like they're still considering their options. It's like they know, all right, Paul came, Paul preached this. He told us about Jesus. We've we've accepted that message. Like we're ready to move forward with the Lord. But then the Judaizers showed up and they're teaching us this. And they're saying we've got to follow the Mosaic law. And we have to do all of these things in order to be fully right with God. And now they're kind of on this like pro-con list. Well, if we listen to Paul, this is true. 
If we choose the Judaizers' teaching, then these things are true. So they're wrestling with this pro-con list. And then in verse number two, what's Paul say? He's like, take note. This is an exclamation of authority here by Paul. Um, imagine, we would maybe say it this phrase. I've never heard somebody in that casual conversation when you're yelling at your kid, be like, hey, take note. You know, it's like old English. I've never seen anybody do that. But put it in modern vernacular. What would he say? Hey, listen up. Or maybe it's this. I remember my mom when I was a young child and she was like about to like lay into me. Did you all ever get the mom look? She didn't have to say any words. Your mom was just like, and you just knew in that moment, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna meet Jesus. Like, I just know like this is about to happen. All right, so that's, that's the words here. That's the tone of this verse. What's Paul say? Verse two, take note, I, Paul, again, exclamation of his authority, tell you that if you get circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. What's he telling us here? That if the Galatians were to take that first step in self-effort as a way to please God, that it was only the beginning. This was a slippery slope that they were about to engage in because it didn't just start with circumcision. That was the, the covenant thing with God in the Old Testament that they were trying to push them to. But now Paul says it's going to start there, but then it's going to be Judaic dietary restrictions. Anybody in here like shrimp? <laughs> Not anymore, you don't. If you try to follow these rules, you like crab? Nope, you can't do that anymore. Pig? Sorry. <laughs> you know, Paul's like there's dietary restrictions. Now you have to follow all of these festivals and holidays, legalistic rules about how you conduct yourself throughout the day, seasons that you have to observe. It's a slippery slope, Paul says. You think, well, oh, it's just circumcision. No, no, no. It is a slippery slope of legalistic actions to somehow make God pleased with you. And Paul says in verse 3, read it again with me, chapter 5. I testify. That every man who gets himself circumcised, guess what? You're obligated now to the entire law, the whole thing. It's not just one part. Paul says, no, no, no. If you take that step into following what these people say, you're obligated to the whole thing. What's the application for you and me? Write this down. Self-effort as a way of pleasing God is going to force you to think like a slave and not a son or daughter of the king. I'm going to say that again because I didn't put it in the notes today. I'm sorry. Self-effort as a way of pleasing God, forces you to think like a slave and not a son or daughter of the king. Here's how the Galatians were thinking. If I get circumcised, God will be pleased with me. If I follow these dietary rules, God will be pleased with me. If I do this, that will make God happy and I'll earn his favor. That's not the way that a child should think. Galatians chapter 4 verse 7 says that we approach our God as Abba, as Father. It's a word of intimate relationship that we have with him. Friends, we are not meant to think as slaves, but as kids. You don't have to earn God's favor. I've said this so, time, so many times over the last three weeks, and I'm going to get this through our thick skulls and scream it again from the rooftops. You do do not have to earn God's favor. Jesus already did that for you. God loves you. He has set you free from the shackles of sin. How somehow, how do we think that we can somehow earn more of God's love through our pity little things that we try to do to impress him? Jesus did it all on the cross for us. Paul says, Galatians, if you take that step, it's a never-ending road, and it alienates you from Jesus. It causes you to think that you don't need him anymore. Jesus, I got this on my own. We don't. Why? Because we're slaves to sin, and there's nothing we can do about it. We need somebody to step in to our place. I heard this story this week. Pastor John Piper, you may have heard of him, former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church. 
He, he told a story this week to explain this verse, and I, I loved this. I'm just going to read this to you. He said, imagine a father and a son playing with Legos, and the father looks at the son and says, it's time to clean up. Now, the situation can go one of two ways at this point. The father can say, son, you're capable. You have all the abilities of cleaning up those Legos on your own. So here's the deal. You have 10 minutes to clean them up. If you don't, you get the spanking of a lifetime. I'm going to lay into you is what the father says. I'm just going to stand here with my arms crossed and watch you do it. That's thinking like a slave. But thinking like a, a son does this. You see, because the father does not want their child living in this state of fear. So what if the son instead looks up at the father and says these words, Daddy, will you help me? So what does the father do? The father sits down on the floor with the son with his legs crossed. He says, here, let's do this. I'll clean up the blue, you clean up the red, and we'll do this together. This is this joint effort because I love you and I want to be in this with you and I want, to, I want to work through this with you. You see, there's a difference between thinking like a slave where we have this taskmaster as a God and thinking like a son where we have a father who came down to get us, who came down to be with us, who came down to rescue us. There's a difference there. Friends, Jesus is sufficient. Jesus came to rescue us from our sin problem. He stepped into our world. Verse number 5. Actually, look, look at the end of verse 4. I want to cover this real quick. Paul says that you, are, you who are trying to be justified by the law, you're, you're alienated from Christ. Again, that's that picture that we've painted there. It's pushing Jesus off to the side, saying, I've got this myself. Here's this little phrase here, five words. You've fallen from grace. Uh, underline that in, in your Bible if you have a paper copy. I want, to, I want to expose you to some dangerous theology, and I want to make sure that we are on the same page here. There's some religious systems within Christianity that will teach you that the implications of the last part of that verse, falling from grace, means that you can lose your salvation. That when Jesus had secured your freedom, he set you free from the chains of sin, that somehow due to your own decision or negligence, you can lose the salvation that Jesus secured for you. Uh, there's a big thing going on right now in, in Christian culture. You've probably seen this where a lot of Christian celebrities are, quote, deconstructing their faith. That the faith systems that they grew up under, now they're, they're getting enlightened and they're thinking more clearly and they're deconstructing these things that they, they formerly believed. And so they would tell you, well, I'm no longer a Christian. I have, I have given up or walked away from the salvation that I received when I was younger. And they'd say that you've fallen from grace at that point. You can lose your salvation. You can walk away from it. Let me make a couple points here. This is important. We're going to confront some false theology here. Um, first off, if you have truly, truly repented of your sin, put your faith in Jesus and been saved by his grace, Ephesians 2, verses 9 and 10, I want you to hear me unequivocally say in a very um, important tone, you can't lose it. That is an impossibility. You cannot lose salvation that Jesus has freely gifted to you. This may be, her, in, our, in our tribe of Southern Baptists, the phrase is once saved, always saved. Right? You, you can't lose a salvation um, that Jesus gave you. If Jesus took up residence in your life, hear me, um, you don't get the option to serve him an eviction notice. That's impossible. And, and here's why. I, I, like, I like illustrations. When, when you repented of sin and Jesus rescued you, Jesus doesn't just become a tenant in your heart. He becomes the landlord. There's a difference. I can evict a tenant or a roommate. The landlord calls the shots from here on out. 
Jesus is not a tenant in my life. He, he's the landlord. When I've truly repented of sin, I give up control to him. And, and the Bible says, we're going to read the verse here in just a second, that when Jesus secures something and it becomes his, it is a physical, spiritual, universal impossibility, eternal impossibility for Jesus to lose it. Jesus doesn't lose anything. That which he secures is his. You can't kick Jesus out of your life. <laughs> Let's go. Jesus is not this God that we can somehow place into our pockets. And then you're like, you know what? I've deconstructed my faith. I'm actually not going to follow this Jesus thing anymore. Jesus, I'm going to kick you to the curb. No, no, no. When Jesus shows up, we said several weeks ago, when Jesus shows up, the phrase is, there goes the neighborhood, right? Like if he's Lord of your life, that means he's boss, master, all of those things. And you don't get a say so in revoking that. It doesn't happen that way. And here's the big point here. Yes, you repented of your sin, but Jesus chose you for salvation. You, you were literally scooped up by him from the pit of hell. The only thing you brought to the table was sin. And Jesus says, here's an opportunity for you to give your life to me. Want it? Scoop up. He scoops you right out of the pit of hell. He shows up, he changes things, and he's now in charge. Let me prove this to you. John chapter 6. This is the will of him who sent me. It's Jesus speaking. Watch. This is so clear. I don't know where this stuff comes from. That I should lose none. You know how many none is? Zero. Jesus never lost anybody. It's never happened before. It's never going to happen. I should lose none of those that the Father's given to me, but I should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Jesus never loses anybody. So what does Paul mean in Galatians 5, 4? What is the actual meaning of fallen from grace? That if I willfully choose to walk away from Jesus with no remorse or regard for the salvation he offers, rather I choose, as the Judaizers wanted them to, to take salvation into my own hands. Hear me, those individuals never knew Jesus in the first place. They didn't. He was not Lord of their life, and that is a very biblical thing. Adrian Rogers, the late preacher, said this. It stuck with me for years. A faith that fizzles was flawed from the start. You didn't know Jesus if you can walk away from him. It is impossible according to the scriptures. Yeah, but I know so-and-so. I don't care. I know what the Bible says. Well, I know this person, but what does the Bible say the Bible says God has never lost one who was his. So it may be your great uncle. It may be your cousin. It may be your friend from down the street. Well, they walked away from Jesus. Friends, I'm here to tell you in the most loving, passionate, compassionate way possible. They didn't know Jesus. They couldn't. They couldn't know Jesus. Look at point number two, and we need to start to, to wind up. So not only are we free from the yoke of slavery, my goodness, about to throw a fit there, but here's the second one. Freedom from myself to live for Jesus. You see, because when we understand freedom, as Paul describes it for us here in Galatians 5, there's this question that I think comes up that I want to deal with. I've encountered this personally over the last six weeks. Here's the question. If I'm free from sin and I'm free from the law, does that mean I can just do whatever I want as a Christian? If I'm free from sin and I'm free from the law, can I do whatever I want as a Christian? If you've never heard it, you're going to hear it soon. Trust me, the way culture is going, it's going to happen. I'm free from sin. I'm free from the law. <laughs> I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I can just do whatever I want because I'm, I'm free in Jesus. 
That makes me want to take a boot and shove it down their throat. I hate that. I'm free in Jesus. I'm wound up today, man. Can I tell you that that kind of thought process as we approach the word of God is an abuse of the Christian freedom that Paul is talking about here? That you, we can do what we want because we're free in Christ? Let me give you the Greek word for that, baloney, all right? <laughs> Nonsense. Paul, Paul said in, in Romans chapter 6, you probably heard this verse before, Paul says, should we just go on sinning so that grace may abound? We hear that all the time. I've encountered this personally with friends and family recently. Well, I can make this bad decision because Jesus is just going to show me grace. I'm free in Christ. <laughs> no. Paul says, should we just sin so that grace can just multiply more and more? That's us looking at God going, God, I'm going to sin and I'm going to make a bad decision, but you're grace-filled, so just forgive me as I live like an idiot. It doesn't work that way. Just because we're free in Christ doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. John Stott put it this way, a little quote for you. He said, freedom's not doing what we want. It's freedom from my little self. I love that. Freedom from my little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and love for other people. Christian freedom, as Paul describes it to us, is not a license to sin, friends, and to do what we want. Instead, and this is where freedom takes a turn for the Christian. I want you to take note of this. Christian freedom is being released from the slavery of sin and the law. And you ready? Being bound to Jesus. You see, in our ideologies of what we think of freedom as, as Americans or maybe some of the experiences that we've had, those are, those are their own definitions of freedoms that we do need to fight for and we need to, to stand on. And I fully support those things. But the Christian definition of freedom says that Jesus has set me free from the chains of my sin, from the yoke of slavery, to take me and bind me to him. I was a captive to these things, but now I am held captive by Jesus. I was a slave to sin, but now I am a slave of Christ. You note almost every letter that Paul writes, that's how he introduces himself. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, a slave to Jesus Christ. A slave to Jesus Christ a bondservant of Jesus. And Paul goes on to say in verse 5, he says, since I'm a recipient of that freedom, what do I do now? I live by faith and no longer by just my works, eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus. Verse number 6, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, they accomplish anything. They don't matter. What does matter is faith working through love. It's not about this legalistic rules that I have to follow. No, 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 Paul says it's about love. Because when I fully understand now as a follower of Jesus, the freedom that Jesus Christ has given me, I understand that my self-effort does not produce righteousness. I don't just keep on sinning now to bank on grace. That's not what Christ has called us to. Instead, what he says is, I use the godliness that Jesus has imputed into my life as a reason to live a righteous life, sold out and completely given over to him. My righteous living is not some way of me earning God's favor. Rather, I, learn, I earn, I'm sorry, it's not a way of me earning God's favor. Rather, I live from God's favor. There's a difference. And one over here says, I have to do things to be declared right. The cross says Jesus declared me right. Now I live in such a way that honors and pleases God because I'm bound to Jesus. 
The best way I could think to phrase it is as a Christian, when I've truly experienced freedom, I live in a constant posture of thank you. That I live, breathe, work, play, everything I do is, is done in this posture of thank you, Jesus. I've been lavished from grace. I'm still free from my sin, and I'm going to stand firm in that, but I'm going to live my life in such a way that says thank you. Thank you for what you have given me that I didn't deserve, and there was nothing I could do about. With every breath, not wanting to make a mockery of the sacrifice of Jesus, rather living from the grace of God. So what's our application? Two application points today. First off, have you experienced the freedom Jesus offers, friends? We're going to ask that question every single week. Have you been set free from the chains of sin in your life and put your faith in Jesus? Paul has reminded us over and over, we don't have to be slaves to our sin, but Jesus came to set us free. And here's how you do that simple prayer. Jesus, I don't want to be a slave to my sin. Set me free from that. In your name I pray, amen. On the authority of God's word, the chains that bound you over here, you are now free from and you are now captive to Jesus Christ for all eternity. There's no better decision you could make. Here's the second one. Are you walking out that freedom as a follower of Jesus? Are you Christian? And I've asked myself this this week. Are you living in that freedom? Not trying to earn God's favor through religious effort, but living from the overflow of being a recipient of God's favor. I ask myself this question. How do I do that? Like, what does it truly look like to walk out living in Christian freedom? How do I do that? How do I live in a posture of thank you? My friend Clint Otto he was a pastor in Cincinnati, passed away about seven years ago. He's one of the most godly men I'd ever known. He said, Aaron, here's how you live in Christian freedom. Constantly ask yourself, what does Jesus want me to do in the next 10 seconds? Do that. Sometimes we get so caught up in tomorrow that we miss what Jesus wants us to do right now. When I walk out of church this morning, what does Jesus want me to do? I'm going to do that. When I get home and I'm getting my kids out of the car, what, is, what would Jesus want me to do in this moment? Do that. When I'm sitting with my spouse this evening watching television, what would, what would the Lord want me to do in this moment? Do that thing. And live in that posture of thankfulness to Jesus. Day by day, moment by moment, second by second, walking in obedience to him in that posture of thank you because you've set me free. Let me pray. Father, what a day it's been. God, thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that it would teach, grow, and encourage your church and call us into a deeper Christ-likeness as we seek to walk in obedience. I pray for my friends maybe that don't know Jesus yet, that this would be the moment that they repent of their sin and ask you to free them from the chains of, of sin that they've been bound up in. God, we know that your death on the cross, your resurrection from the grave is sufficient for our salvation. I pray that they would make that decision today. God, we love you, and I pray that as we now sing, that, God, our voices are a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven, giving you the praise that you deserve. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.